But you know, if you look at the story, I'm talking about wounding in many, many ways. I'm talking about those that are wounded through domestic abuse. And I'm talking about those that are wounded because they reach out for love and it is not given to them. You know, life offers us so many opportunities to, to be hurt in so many ways. And so I wanted to just talk about all of those ways in which we are wounded ourselves and, and that we wound others and how do we heal? How do we all heal? Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Today, we are thrilled to welcome someone who is truly a favorite among readers, William Kent Kruger whose latest, The River We Remember, debuted in September to huge acclaim. We're excited to dig deep with him and find out the story behind the story and what makes this prolific author tick. And we're glad that you're here listening to us, too. I'm Ron Block. And I'm Kristen Harmel. And William Kent Kruger, who goes by Kent, is the New York Times bestselling author of The River We Remember, This Tender Land, and Ordinary Grace, which was the winner of the Edgar Award for Best Novel. He's also the author of the original audio novella, The Levy, as well as 19 acclaimed books in the Quirk O'Connor mystery series, including Lightning Strike and Fox Creek. He lives in the Twin Cities with his family. In starred reviews, book page called The River We Remember, a superb exploration of the prejudices and complexities of post-World War II America. And Booklist said that it combines nostalgic settings with depictions of the lingering hardships and traumas of war and the home front. The Minneapolis Star Tribune says that it's deeply moving, intimate, and epic in equal measure. The Denver Post calls it a work of art. Kristen and I both really love the book, too, and we're looking forward to chatting with Kent about it. Kent, welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writers Block podcast. What a pleasure it is to be with you. Thanks so much for the invitation to join you. Oh, we are thrilled you are here. Now, Kent, in The River We Remember, you plunge us deep into a small Minnesota town in 1958 as it's rocked by the murder of one of its most powerful citizens, the wealthy and very disliked Jimmy Quinn. It is up to Sheriff Brody Dern, a war hero living with all sorts of guilt, to untangle the mystery of Quinn's death, which is complicated by the town's rush to blame it on Noah Bluestone, a Native American World War II vet who brought home a Japanese bride. Everyone in town has secrets, and as Brody peels back the layers one by one, he's forced to confront his own demons too. So that's a little bit about the plot of the book. But can you tell us what you think this book is really about at its core? 
Oh, I'm so happy you asked that question, Kristen. I mean, this really is a true mystery because the question at the heart of the story is who killed Jimmy Quinn and why? But as you point out, that's not really what the story is about. In, uh, in the early 1940s, my father graduated from high school, enlisted in the military service, and marched off to Europe to fight in World War II. You know, he was just a kid. He was 18 years old. He came back several years later, a man deeply wounded in body and in spirit by what the war had done to him. I recognize now that he was probably suffering from PTSD, but nobody talked about that back then. Or if they did, they called it shell shock or battle fatigue. And, uh, you know, like every kid, I pestered my dad for war stories. Did you kill any Germans, dad? He absolutely refused to talk about the war. And he was so like the, the fathers of my friends, guys who, like my dad, had uh, fought in World War II or the Korean War. And all of them went away kids, some of them not even old enough to shave yet. And they came back men deeply wounded by the horrors that they had seen and the horrors that they had been a part of. And all my life I've wondered, how, how could anybody heal from that kind of wounding? And what about the people they left behind, their loved ones, their their wives, their mothers, their fathers, their sisters, people who I'm sure were praying for them desperately while they were away fighting, and maybe who in the end lost them on the battlefield? How did they heal their wounds? How did anybody find a way to heal? And that's really what the river we remember is about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm stunned to hear that. I, I just, it makes sense, so much sense, and, and I can feel... I could feel it coming off the pages of the book. So um, it's it's really wonderful that you shared that with us. So one of the other big elements of the book is the the prejudice that's laced throughout the story, especially in regard to the town's rush to judge Noah Bluestone and his wife, Kyoko. What drew you to that? Well, I didn't want to just talk about the wounds that wars deliver to us. I wanted to talk about the wounding that we receive uh, in so many ways. And prejudice is certainly one of those ways that we are wounded and we wound others. And so it was easy uh, because the history of Southern Minnesota is so uh, knotted up with the history of the, the Dakota in Southern Minnesota. It was a natural way for me to build in that whole question of prejudice. And when you add to that the fact that Noah Bluestone has brought with him a Japanese bride, so soon after World War II, who's, the memory of which is still so strong uh, in people's minds and makes so many people still so bitter, it seemed to, to me a good way to, uh, to talk about prejudice. But, you know, if you look at the story, I'm talking about wounding in many, many ways. Uh, I'm talking about those that are wounded through domestic abuse. I'm talking about those that are wounded because they reach out for love and it is not given to them. You know, life offers us so many opportunities to, to be hurt in so many ways. And so I wanted to just talk about all of those ways in which we are wounded ourselves and, and that we wound others. And how do we heal? How do we all heal? Uh, okay, so you've kind of now explained why the book is set where when it is in the 50s. But what kind of research did you have to do to make sure that you got it as accurate as you did. You know, I find it uh, I find it a little amusing that this is being called an historical novel because you know I was alive then. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. And I certainly don't think of myself as an historical figure, at least not yet. <laughs> so much of my evocation of the time and the place came out of my own experience, my own memories. 
but in order to make sure that I was accurate in any of the cultural references that I made, uh, the songs that people were listening to on the radio or the books they were reading or uh, the events of the day, uh, I certainly went back and did my research to make sure that there was nothing anachronistic involved in this story. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Totally. So you talked a little bit about the war wounds people came home with. Can you talk a little bit specifically about how war shaped Brody? I feel like that's such a thread that as we peel back the layers that surround him, we uncover as as the novel goes on. And I think it it shapes how he interacts with others. It shapes how he investigates this crime. And it gives him a path to his own redemption that maybe at the beginning he doesn't know he needs. Yeah, Brody really, for me, was a stand-in for men like my father. My father came back with medals, uh, but never considered himself a hero. Uh, the war for him was simply a hell that he, uh, that he had to endure. Uh, there was nothing heroic about his actions. And Brody, that's Brody. Brody goes off to war in part because he's in love with a woman he can't have. Um, and as well as, you know, it was a time when all young men were expected to go off to war. He initially fights in Africa and is wounded, gets medals for it, is greatly disturbed by what he has experienced there, decides, well, there's a war going on somewhere where there's actually water. It's not just sand and scorpions. So he decides to go to uh, the, the front that is being fought in Southeast Asia. And uh, even more horrific things occur uh, there in his life. But these things end up with him receiving more medals and more acclaim as a, as a quote-unquote hero. And Brody, Brody knows that he has not behaved in a heroic way or what people would consider uh, heroic. And when he comes back to... Uh, his hometown to make his, his way there, his living there, he, he can't quite fit in anymore. He doesn't really fit in with his family. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't fit the image that people hold of him. And so he's still trying to, he's trying to heal. He's trying to find a way to heal, to come to terms with who he understands himself to be and embrace him embrace all of the brokenness in him that is what it is to be human for for any of us um, and I, I really liked that ill that dis-ease of Brody in this place that so many people feel so comfortable because it's home to Brody it's it's not quite home yet I liked that element too but I also liked how that offered you an opportunity to make this a story about Brody finding his way back. I mean, that's what it felt like to me. It was a very, a very character-driven story in that way, and I, I thought it was beautifully done. Yeah, and it's not just about Brody finding his way. Yeah. I mean, there are so no, many characters no. who are stumbling, and it's a story about how all of them, or many of them at any rate, help one another find their way. You're right. Which is, I think, what we're all here for. Absolutely. I'm here for it. That's for sure. <laughs> that's interesting, though. So with everybody on their path in the journey, I want to know, did you have this all planned out ahead of time, like what each character's path would be, or did you kind of develop them as you kind of got to know the characters yourself and wove them together? You know, I approach writing a story in two different ways, depending upon the kind of story I'm going to write. When I write one of my novels in the Corco Condor series, those are really mysteries. 
And uh, a mystery is a very tightly woven fabric of storytelling. Everything depends so significantly on everything else. And I think that the success of a mystery depends largely on the timing of the reveals. When do you give the reader the clues that are going to be necessary to solving the mystery at the heart of the story? So when I write a story in my Coco Connor series, I try to think that story through as completely as I can before I ever put my fingers to the keyboard. At the end of that thinking process, which can take weeks or sometimes even months, I know how the story begins, I know how it ends, I know who did what to whom and why, I know the thread, the, the themes that I want to thread through the story. And a mystery really is a, it's an intellectual construct. You're creating a puzzle in your head and you're working like crazy to make sure all the pieces of that puzzle fit perfectly together. My standalones, Ordinary Grace, This Tender Land, and The River We Remember didn't come from my head. They came from my heart. And so I was looking for a process that would be different, that would really allow me to tell the story in such a way that readers could feel like I was giving it to them straight from my heart. So going into the writing of these three standalones, I knew very little uh, about how the story was going to uh, to play out. I knew some of the salient elements that I was going to include, but how the story was going to end, who was going to really do what to whom, how that all was going to play out. I really had no idea. And so I embarked on the writing of the story um, and and with the idea of letting the story reveal itself to me and the characters reveal themselves to me as I created the story. That worked really well for Ordinary Grace in this tender land. I kind of screwed it up with uh, <laughs> <laughs> the river we remember. I don't know if you're aware of this, but this uh, manuscript was contractually due to my publisher more than six years ago. I finished, uh, I finished the manuscript and did a number of revisions of it, and it was n- still not the story I wanted it to be. And so um, I let my publisher know, I'm not going to give you this manuscript um, you know, they paid me a pretty penny for it, and I, I told them I'll be happy to pay you back, but I'm not giving you this story. It's wow. not good enough. Uh, they were really understanding. <laughs> they said, you don't have to pay us back, uh, but you have to give us, uh, <laughs> a, still have to give us a standalone novel. So I ended up writing This Tender Land and offering them that instead. Um, so this uh, this manuscript set for more than six years uh, on a shelf, and uh, I didn't uh, pick it up again and look at it until the pandemic when I, you know, I had, during the pandemic, I just, I don't know about you, Kristen, I just wrote like crazy. It was one of the most creative periods I've ever gone through because I couldn't travel. I couldn't do events. All I could do was stay home and write. So I wrote uh, two manuscripts for the Cork O'Connor series, uh, Lightning Strike and Fox Creek. I wrote three novellas. You know, the levy was published as an audiobook original in February. And then I ran out of, uh, ran out of ideas. So I reached up to that shelf where I'd put that uh, manuscript six years before and I pulled it down and open it up and I began to read it. And Kristen, I don't know how you operate as a storyteller. Your work is just, is marvelous. And I don't know how you get there, but this is for me, in order to do justice to a story, I have to hear the voice of that story speak to me. And six years ago, I just didn't hear that voice, but I had a contractual obligation to meet. So I went ahead and I wrote the story and honest to God, the whole time, it felt like I was pushing against the current of the river. And so I screwed it up. And, you know, when I looked at it this time, I heard that voice speak to me in an authentic way. Yeah. 
And I wish I could tell you what happened across those six years. I don't know if the story just needed more time to gestate or I just needed to become smarter as a storyteller. I don't know. But I heard the voice of that story speak to me and I knew this time I could do it justice. So I spent the next year and a half completely revising the manuscript and that uh, that mangled piece that I was, I was sure was absolutely unsalvageable really has become a story that I believe in profoundly and love deeply. You know, I think sometimes you just have to go through something in your own life or be at the right place in your own journey mm-hmm. to be able to hear those characters and to be able to find your way back to that story. I mean, that's happened to me before, too. It's partially happening to me now, so I completely understand, <laughs> and I appreciate knowing I appreciate knowing that there's hope at the end of the tunnel, light at the there end of the tunnel. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I'm living proof, Kristen. Phew. <laughs> You give her hope. <laughs> it's, it's that old saying, like, the right story at the yeah. right time. Yep. Yeah. So you mentioned, like, working with the current in the book. In the prologue, you say, with people, we fall in love too easily, it seems, and too easily fall out of love. But with the land, it's different. We abide much. That says so much about the Alabaster River and how it runs through not only the town and the county, but also in the story. And it's almost like its own character in the book. Can you talk about setting that there and the importance of it to the story in the book? Yeah, I love rivers. They can be metaphors for so many things. And so I use rivers significantly, particularly in my uh, my standalones. Rivers can be metaphors for the coming of age, the journey from uh, childhood into that often sad wisdom of adulthood. It can be a stand for the journey, the spiritual journey that I think we're all on. Um, it can stand for the journey of and uh, the creation of family and relationship. It just has so many possibilities. The alabaster in the river we remember ties the past and the present together. Uh, there's a terrific history, tremendous history in uh, Black Earth County. And so it ties all of that together. It ties the land itself to the people who occupy the land. Um, and it is, uh, it, and it ties, um, if, if you read it in a metaphysical way, it ties uh, two worlds together uh, because there are, there may be, in fact, um, spirits uh, involved in the river itself. So who occupy a different, maybe a different uh, dimension, a different place. So yeah, I, I had a lot of fun <laughs> working with the Alabaster River <laughs> in this story. Well, the river itself really did feel like a character. Um, it's and true. And I, I, I love, I love it when novels do that, where the setting itself. I mean, y- you couldn't have put this novel anywhere else. You know what I mean? Like the setting itself was such a crucial component of it. Another of the traits that runs, or I guess one of the traits that runs through so many of your characters, I think, Kent, is regret. So many of them are carrying heavy loads on their shoulders, things from their past that they regret deeply. And though many of those elements don't directly impact the plot, they make the story so much richer and so much more well-rounded. Regret and the way it weighs us down was one of the themes of my last novel, too. So I think I was particularly drawn to that facet of your novel. Can you talk a little bit about why regret is such a powerful tool in a novelist's arsenal as we go about creating characters that readers can sympathize with? I'm going to begin by saying I'm a Scorpio. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I don't know if you know anything about Scorpios, but we carry grudges. Ah. You know, we've got that, that stinger, that tail, always ready to strike. So uh, forgiveness has always been an issue for me my whole life. <laughs> I carry grudges. And also, I have, diffi- I have 
great difficulty forgiving myself. Uh, so many, so much of any given day is uh, is built around remembering hurts that I have done to others and regretting or stupid things or trespasses or whatever. And it's really hard for me to let go of those and forgive myself. Um, so in, in a way, the writing of a novel like The River We Remember is an exercise in reminding myself that <laughs> that uh, that regret gets us nowhere and that until we're really ready to forgive ourselves, we're going to be carrying around an enormous load that keeps us from really uh, being able to live uh, the life I, th I think probably the, the creator meant us to live. Although regret is probably one of those things that we're supposed to go through because it's so human. And if we don't regret, how can we understand the regret of others? How can we forgive those people who we recognize regret what they've done if we don't understand that? And it just adds wonderfully to the complexity of characters, you know. If everybody is, is you know, all hunky-dory, <laughs> what kind of a story is that? <laughs> yeah. Next, That's next so book. true. <laughs> Very true. Throughout the book, we're trying to unravel the mystery at the center of the story, which is who killed Jimmy Quinn. At the beginning, we get a lot of physical evidence, like where his body turned up or a spot on the ground soaked in blood. And it seems obvious to follow those physical clues, but that certainly turns the novel, you've turned the novel into something much deeper than that. And the, and the key to Jimmy Quinn's murder lies in secrets and lies simmering beneath the surface. You talk about a, the appeal of writing a story like that, where the real clues lie inside people's hearts and their homes? Sure. I wanted, uh, I set out initially six years ago with the idea of trying to write a story that would be about healing, particularly the kind that I, I wished my father had been able to find in his life. But I wanted to couch it inside a mystery because I was a mystery writer. That's how people identified my work. And so I got involved, too involved at that point in time in creating the mystery, making sure that all of the elements of the mystery worked. And I forgot about the people. And maybe that's what I discovered when I went back six years later and took a look at the story. The people were the story, yes. not who killed Jimmy Quinn. And so I needed to rewrite it in such a way that the characters the mystery of the characters really became what was important. Why they behave the way they do, why they interact the way they do, why they're afraid of relationship or, or you know, whatever they're, they're hiding is. And, you know, years ago when I taught creative writing, and I, I forgot this, years ago when I taught creative writing, I would tell my students, a good story isn't about what happens. It's about who it happens to. I love that. And I needed to go back and I needed to create characters, make sure that I had created characters that readers could embrace as fully human and accept their flaws and their failings and their brokenness and their woundedness and really believe in them and hope for them and care about them. And when I did that, I, it became such a better story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly can't imagine this story without that. I mean, the characters were really so much at the heart of it. So I'm glad you found uh, your yeah. way back into that. Oh, me too. Me too. <laughs> me too. Well, I, I just want to go off script a little bit because I, I think as you're talking, it's it's reminding me 
of this, you're such a master at setting up a scene in the story. And I, I think back to when, uh, as a reader, we first meet Kyoko in the field and how you set that up. And you used very few words to describe it, but it told us so much about it. How do you approach each of these scenes? I mean, the other scene is the when we hear the explanation of why the Alabaster River has its name and things. It just is so fascinating to me. How do you pull those together? <laughs> <laughs> Wish I could say I had a process. It's, <laughs> it's easy. I do it the same way every time. <laughs> gotcha. gotcha. Uh, you know, uh, it's just part of how I function now as a storyteller. I have learned that less is more, as every storyteller should learn. And I have learned that there are unique details that can can suggest to a reader so much more than giving them, you know, a whole page of purple prose. And so when I'm imagining, sinking myself into the imagining of a scene, I look for those details um, and I try to make it visual. You know, I try to be very sensual in how I create the scene. And so I'm trying to tap into sounds and uh, sights and textures and excite the reader's senses in as many ways as I can, as simply as I can. Because, you know, every good storyteller understands that readers are bright people. All you have to do is kind of point them in the right direction, and their brains just imagine so much more. So my guess is, uh, Ron, that you, uh, you're you imagining a great deal more than I actually put on the page. <laughs> um, uh, maybe, but it just, it's, to me, it was stunning. It was like watching... One of the one of the great cinematic film adventures where you just the camera takes you there, but you kind of did it with your words. You know, I really very cinematic. I I I most admire those writers who like me write out of a profound sense of place, and I really do want readers. I want to ground readers. I want them to feel like they are in this moment, in as many ways as I can. Um, and as subtly as I can. I don't want to hit them over the head with it. Kristen, you are really, really good at that as well. Yes. Yes, she is. That's a nice thing to say. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you've just revealed one of our secrets of storytelling, which is that you know, you have to give the readers enough to kind of sink their teeth into and be able to understand the world. But the way that the reader connects with the story is filling in those additional blanks themselves based on what you've given them, I think. I think that's so well put on on your end. And thank you for the nice compliment as well. (laughs) (laughs) So Kent, you've recently learned that Ordinary Grace, another of your standalone novels, has been selected as by Time Magazine as one of the 100 best mysteries and thrillers of all time, which is amazing. In your Facebook post about it, you said, my father, who was a high school English teacher, would be so proud. So first, congratulations on that wonderful honor. And second, you've already mentioned your father a couple times. I'd love to ask you, can you tell us a bit about how your upbringing shaped your development as a writer and how you think it brought you to who you are and what you write today? Yeah, well, thank you, Kristen. I, I got to say, I was uh, I was kind of gobsmacked by, uh, <laughs> by the inclusion of Ordinary Grace. Thrilled, thrilled for sure. But uh, Honestly, I never considered uh, Ordinary Grace a mystery, even though it won the Best (laughs) Mystery Award for the Edgar. Um, It was about so much more than just this mystery, in the same way that The River We Remember is about so much more than Jimmy Quinn's uh, murder. Yeah, my dad was uh, tremendously influential in my life. Uh, I learned from a very early age from my father uh, the power of words. Um, The idea that words 
have magic. If you wor use words correctly, they move people in really mysterious ways. So I've always had this great respect for the power of language. And, uh, you know, every time I sit down to write, it's like my father's looking over my shoulder. And uh, I'm, in a sense, I'm, I try to, to write in a way that I believe will, will please him, make him proud. Um, and he pointed me to early on to so many fine writers who have influenced me. When I was 18 years old, he insisted that I read Ernest Hemingway, which was good and bad. I fell in love with Hemingway and uh, tried forever to write the great American novel as Ernest Hemingway might have written it, uh, stupid on so many levels. <laughs> in the end, my father became uh, one of my, maybe even my biggest fan. Uh, he was so thrilled for my success and so complimentary of the way in which I, I tell a story. Oh, well, that is, that's wonderful. And may I just say, I'm glad you decided to write like William Kent Kruger rather than like Hemingway. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big Hemingway fan, but I think you're doing your own beautiful take on the great American novel. Well, you know, Absolutely. Kristen, when I talk, again, when I talk creative writing, the first thing I would say to my students was this, if you're here because you think it's going to be really cool to call yourself a writer, or you think you're going to get uh, going to get rich and famous at it, I can pretty much guarantee you'll be disappointed. Yeah. But if you're here because you love to write, because it's what your heart tells you you have to do, then I can pretty much guarantee a different experience. And I think in the end, it's not going to matter whether you become rich and famous, because what you will have done is spent your life following your heart, following your passion, and what could be better than that. But I also told my students this, if you're true to that journey, eventually, you're going to discover the writer you were always meant to be, and you'll be writing the stories you were always meant to write. And that's when yes. the doors will open for you. It took me a very long time to figure out the writer I am and the stories that I ought to be writing. But um, I'm not doing such a bad job of it now. You were doing a great no. job. And honestly, those words those words speak to my journey, too. It, it took me almost a decade to figure out what I was supposed to be writing. Yep. And, and once I found it, it, it just it felt like the whole world had opened up. So you were absolutely yeah, what a blessing. right. Yes, when you discover yes. who you are as a yep. writer, what a blessing that is. You're totally right. And then I think it leads you down the road to who you are as a person, too. I think the two go hand in hand. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Welcome to Masterclass. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. No, I, I'm so glad this is being recorded because it's such great advice yeah. for young writers or people just picking up the pen. It's really amazing. So thanks for all of that. And now, breaking news, too. I just saw that um, The River We Remember is uh, one of Barnes & Noble's best of the year. Congratulations. So congrats That's on that. Amazing. Thank you. So, Kent, uh, what is next for you? Well, I've just finished the first draft of the next in my Cork O'Connor series. It's a novel called uh, Spirit Crossing. God willing, it should be out this time next year. I have one more book in the series under contract, but I'm not going to start on that yet. I have another standalone that has been knocking at my door for a while, pretty much demanding that I write it. So I'll probably spend a couple of years on that project first. Well, we're here for all of them. For people out there who want to connect with you online, can you tell us how they can connect with you and maybe also find out any upcoming tour dates? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I have a website, doesn't every author, www.williamkentkruger.com. If you want to contact me personally, there is a contact button on my website. The note that you send me will come directly to my personal email, and I really do my best to respond to all of those. My tour schedule, all of my appearances are also on my website. You can find me on Instagram and apparently on Twitter. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm probably on other social platforms as well. I 
He's everywhere. He's everywhere. <laughs> oh, well, Kent, we so appreciate you joining us today. You know what? It was a joy as a reader, as a writer, and as a human being. I, I feel like you you spoke to us in a way that touched us in all three ways, which is which is incredible. That's the the trifecta. That's the the perfect interview guest. So it was wonderful to dig a bit deeper with you and talk about these well-rounded, beautifully written, complicated characters and the gut-wrenching mystery that unfolds in Black Earth County, Minnesota. You know, you both have been so delightful. Thank you so much. Well, I, I have to say that it's really been an honor, too, because I now, I feel like I have a deeper relationship with this book that, of course, I'm going to scream from the rooftops to everyone to read. It's incredible. And thank you so much for being here. And a huge thank you to our listeners. We love that you tune in to meet our fascinating and talented guests every week. For a copy of The River We Remember, visit our friendsinfictionbookshop.org store and receive a discount while helping indie bookstores. We're so grateful you are here. Tune in next week and please bring a friend along. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.